Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Carey, and today I'm really excited to have a conversation with my dear friend, Donna Dixon. Donna leads a Door of Hope peer facilitator training. And Donna has been a friend and a mentor to me for at least the last six years. We are so excited to sit and talk to you today about ways that we can equip the church and equip men and women to help both partners and addicts in their recovery. Donna, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I am so glad to be with you as always. Yay. Well, before we get into our conversation, because I know we'll have a lot to talk about, I want to give some clarifying statements to our audience. So the language that we use when we talk about people who have experienced sexual brokenness, whether they have a pornography addiction or have had affairs, it's really tricky. And there's lots of various terms that people like and don't like. And for the sake of our conversation today, we are going to call the person who has broken their marital vows or who has uh, problematic sexual behavior, we're going to call them the addict for the sake of brevity. And we're going to call their spouse or their fiance or their long-term uh, relationship person, the partner for the sake of brevity. That could be a wife or it could be a husband who has experienced sexual betrayal trauma. So Donna currently has peer facilitator training running for partners. So for women who are wanting to help other women who've gone through sexual betrayal trauma. And Donna, can you just share a little bit more about your vision for A Door of Hope and what led to it? Sure, I'd love to. A Door of Hope began um, when when I tried to lead my first partner group, I'm a long-term group leader in the church setting and outside the church setting. And something was different. I, I experienced behaviors as a partner. I had experienced my own behaviors, but I also experienced behaviors in the women who were attending that were tricky and I wasn't sure how to handle them. So I contacted Marsha Means, who was the uh, author of the workbook, journey to healing and joy and asked her what training was out there uh, because I, I knew I needed something more and she was not aware of any training. This was in 2008 and that began a conversation with her and Barb Steffens who uh, founded AppSats and wrote, yeah, Shane Marsha wrote uh, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse. So we started talking back then, uh, but both, all three of us had other things I wasn't ready to start anything around it in 2014 at a conference where I met you. That's right. Um, I was asked to be on the um, board of an organization and they asked if I would create curriculum. I did. Uh, I cre started creating a workbook, but I recognized from the beginning, in part because I'm also a, a trained Stephen ministry leader, that I couldn't just do a workbook that I knew of work by then, I knew a workbook um, would not really equip someone. It might inform them, but not equip. So I, I knew I developed what I called a three-tier approach. And that would be, I'd create the workbook, but I would also create a training, which I have experience with in my professional background. And then a, a support community where we could uh, have continuous um, education, and ongoing training and ongoing just support for yeah. those uh, who are, are both partners and facilitators. 
So that was the vision that began in, in 2014. The workbook was, the first workbook was completed and I started training in early, uh, late 2015, early 2016. And I've been doing it since. I love it. And I send my leaders in my Women in the Battle groups, I recommend every single one of them. I, I am just almost on the verge of demanding them, <laughs> requiring them to do your training because it is so effective. It is so helpful. And it makes my job leading, overseeing these groups a hundred times easier because they get their training and how to effectively lead a partner group from you. Um, and then I just need to align them with the specifics of how we run our groups. It's such a great partnership. I love it. Can you tell me more about your passion for the peer facilitator role? Like, why do you have such a passion for this particular role? And can you explain what the role even is? Sure, I can. Um, the passion grew with my earliest research on using that title instead of group leader. Um, it, the original plan was that, uh, that I was asked to create for was for churches, that they would be able to, um, it would be for the church person who was going to lead a partner's group and uh, so my initial thought was group leader because that's what's most known in the church. But as I began doing more research about peer uh, facilitator and peer facilitator role, I began understanding that that is as distinct a role as what in our community uh, is, is thought of as the coach. Uh, and I am a certified coach and I have been APSATS trained at, in my coaching role. And I have a whole bunch of respect for that, as well as for the clinician and other roles in the helping professions. But what I understood, began understanding is that um, there are organizations out there that have studied and researched uh, the, the value of that role and its importance, our mental health field, for example. Um, there are organizations like NAMI, which is a national association of, uh, for mental illness, and they train and, and use peer facilitators and peer support. Um, other organizations are Veterans Affairs uh, mm -hmm. in the U.S. They and have a Donna, when you say peer facilitator and peer support, just like the name implies, the peer is somebody who has actually been through whatever that exactly. group is supporting. Exactly. So, so for these for partner groups, these yep. are women who have gone through sexual betrayal exactly. and they want to help that. support other women, which is the Correct. most powerful way for yep. women to experience support in a group yes. context is when they're doing that with other women who actually have lived through what they're living Absolutely. through. It, it's that whole, the power of uh, the me too, you understand me, um, even if the journey isn't the same and it won't be, none of our journeys are the same. So as I did that research and began gathering that, my respect for the role grew. And what I found within, um, within our colleagues was a growing understanding too for more, um, for more equipping, just like you said. If I can mm -hmm. become equipped, and my job is, my job is the, the easier job in a large sense because I'm equipping them to, to go out. And recently in a conversation with Barb Stefan, she um, said some things that um, uh, we're talking about a number of things, but she said some things related to what I do and what my 
heart is about Adored Hope that's so mirrored. And I'd love to share it with your listeners because it is, while she's talking specifically about partners, I see it also affecting the, the addict and that whole community, regardless of whether it's male or female. Yeah. Uh, so what what Barb said was partners can begin to heal and flourish in community. And unfortunately, the needs for partners communities is only increasing. And there is a limited number of people adequately trained to facilitate this safe healing space in group sit- settings. Well-trained and passionate peer group facilitators are perfect for meeting such a need in the majority of cases. Peer facilitators can provide support, encouragement, education, and safe space for partners to explore what they need to heal and to grow. I dream of having these types of groups and safe spaces in every faith, community, and even therapeutic Mm -hmm. setting to be frontline first responders, as well as ongoing support safe spaces. And so often, as you know, in your experience, um, that is true. We, we are first line uh, responders out there. A lot of them don't know where is a good uh, therapist that I can work with. Where is a good coach? And so as first responders, we get to do that. But we want to be trained. And then we want to be supported. And that's that's my goal uh, with the, um, the peer facilitators. What the role of a peer facilitator is pretty comprehensive. A lot of most people come thinking it's about come to the training thinking it's about what I do when I come to group, mm-hmm. how I just lead the group without being aware of the other types of skills that are needed for the role, like planners and coordinators and just that the group uh, responsibility begins before you even be, start your first group. And it continues after a group is over. So we we talk about it comprehensively uh, about the role, all the different skills that are needed. And I do that um, with a an awareness that the betrayal makes, uh, and betrayal trauma specifically, but also other types of trauma we may have experienced. And Mm-hmm. By statistics, we know that most of us have experienced trauma in our lives, that we must do so from a different approach. We can't do it without considering the impact of that in a person's life. And that's one of my favorite things about how you frame your training is the trauma-informed approach. And that is so incredibly effective and really needed, especially in the church. Um, We tend to think in the church through a more spiritual lens. And God, in fact, created us body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, will. We are so complex and multidimensional. But oftentimes in the church, we want to look at things only from a spiritual dimension. And when we leave out the impact of trauma on our hearts, on our brains, on our bodies, we are not effectively treating the whole person. So I I love that you take a trauma-informed approach. Do you want to tell me more about why you're taking a trauma-informed approach and how you take a trauma-informed approach in your training? I'd love to. Um, One of the reasons I didn't start out even understanding the language of what a trauma-informed approach meant, what that included. And that began early on in my first, after my first training, 
one of the reasons it began was I recognized in the, the small group of women who were brave enough to go through my training that um, I recognized other stories in their lives as they as we would share during it because I run it as a training experience I want I want us to experience what it's like to be in a group as we go through what is required to to do that role and and inevitably other stories of trauma would come out someone as time went on someone would have uh, be triggered during training and triggered related to something other than their partner experience so in my research and reading and listening, I understood this whole other language about what does it mean to be a trauma-informed organization? What does that require? And how does that help inform how I do the, conduct the training? And so I understood it was a language. And in doing so, it required a number of things. It, uh, I, I did so beginning. It starts with understanding that we don't talk about, uh, we ask, what has happened to you? Instead of coming from the approach of what is wrong with you? Mm. We understand that there are stories and that, that uh, when I, in doing so, I acknowledge, I acknowledge this is trauma-informed language. Trauma-informed means I'm not an expert. Uh, I, I'm not an expert in trauma. What I am is trauma-informed. There's an organization um, that is leading the charge on uh, uh, developing trauma-informed congregations. If you have a trauma-informed congregation, it's going to inform how you do children's ministry and yes. teen ministry. Every ministry in the church looks at their role differently. Well, that's mm -hmm. how I approach the training. Um, I acknowledge the widespread uh, uh, trauma impact in our, our culture it, it, worldwide. I, I acknowledge, I look for trauma signs in people. I watch for that. I stay fully present in the training. I've so learned Donna, how to do that. Give us some examples because some of our people listening are, are going to be pastors, ministers, um, or even group leaders. And what are some things they can look for that you're looking for as signs of trauma in the people okay. that they're loving and serving? Good question. It, it, I'll, I'll address the children's ministry. Just talk about that. Schools, I have a number of family members who are educators. They work in the school systems. Most schools today are trauma-informed, not yes. all. And they might be trauma-informed um, at, at a very basic level, that, which means they at least have the language, but they don't have a lot of, because of, there, there's so much that our schools are, are burdened with. And I don't mean that from an exclusively like uh, uh, a criticizing way. I mean that like our churches, they are overwhelmed with the, yeah. the needs of our society today. So trauma-informed would look at children's behaviors and they would, it, we would consider, is this be, can this behavior be a result of this or might it be a trauma response? Just as uh, the basic need of, of someone who's been traumatized is I need to feel safe mm -hmm. and I no longer feel safe in this world. Yeah. And so if I'm the, if I'm showing up in school and something triggers me as a child, which it will, their brains are the same as my brain and my brain is going to react from a 
trauma that I may have experienced. That's why the ACEs um, uh, advanced, no, adverse childhood experience is those are assessments that are done in schools. I ask my students um, and, uh, during one of the sessions, that's something I ask them to do just so that they can look at what might I, I have experienced as a child. Most of us are unfamiliar with those things. So if I'm approaching and I look through a trauma lens, I'm going to want, wonder about the story. I'm going to be curious. What's this person's story? Uh, what led to this? And that's for both partners and the, per, the sex addict, the person with those behaviors. What trauma is under, might be underneath this that contributes to that? So to when that, you're leading uh, your, you know, your group, uh, your training, mm -hmm. um, and you're doing this over Zoom, usually for the most part yes. yeah sometimes it's live but sometimes it's over zoom what are you looking for what are you scanning your audience to see as a sign sure. of trauma sure um the well the first thing is some of the obvious are they uh are they able to self-regulate and that i assess before i even allow someone to go through the training but in a in a group if they're triggered what do they know to, you know i watch for signs of triggering um said that might be um Ver, you know, how what they're expressing. It can be the nonverbal. Is somebody shutting down? Do I see them shutting mm -hmm. down? Uh, do I see them um, tearing up? Uh, there's lots of different ways people respond because we have mm -hmm. fight, flight, or freeze. And there's other <laughs> things they're now talking about too in describing behaviors. So the more aware I am of what how somebody might respond, uh, the more aware I can be of what does this look like and mm. watch for it i i have words i describe it in the training that like like on the top of my laptop it it's not written there but in my eyes they are and in my heart and that's stay to remind me to stay present and to remind me to stay curious mm -hmm. so that i'm i i stay mentally and uh spiritually and emotionally aware of what's happened what's happening in the room. They say that the top skill for a facilitator is self-awareness. Mm. And in most recent literature, we know that self-awareness is not just internal, that I'm aware of what's happening in me. Yeah. But I'm aware also of what is, how am I impacting others? What, yes. What's the energy I'm giving out? And then yeah. what do I feel around me? So I, I uh, as I continue to work at developing that and increasing that skill for the external, um, that helps me listen better. Listening is the, the empathetically listening is mm -hmm. the other skill that's absolutely essential as a group leader uh, as, and as a trainer. You know, if yes. I'm facilitating a group and as I'm training, it's less about, I, I tell from the beginning, I say, I'm, I'm not here to lecture. I'm not here to do that. What I'm here is we're going to enter into this experience together because that's what a peer facilitator does. Mm. She or he is not here. We're here in a group. Yeah. yeah. I might have, I'm a little further along in a journey and I'm going to model for you and I'm going to share with you what helped me get a little further along. Right. So that's right. what we do. But we also have to understand the power of the group. As a facilitator, you're trained to understand that what you want is a cohesive group. 
right? It's that, not about one individual. It's about no, what's it's, best it's, for the whole group. What's best for the whole group. And, and yet we hold intention. Yes. It's a very demanding we do role. care. We do care for the individuals. We have to, because it can disrupt the whole group. Right. So being aware of that, and, and um, we talk a lot about learning to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yes. Because there's tensions we have to enter in, um, intervene in during the group. There can be tensions that we have to be comfortable enough being uncomfortable to engage in that so that the whole group doesn't suffer. Right. So, and trauma-informed, if I don't do that through a trauma-informed lens, like when I am doing, um, when I will, I will see behaviors. When I talk about group dynamics and group stages, I approach it from a trauma-informed lens and talk about how that's different. We might see, uh, back to what do I look for? We might see behaviors that in regular group theory and group stages and group dynamics, we might see as something that just needs to be stopped and corrected and, you know, and not brutally, but stop mm -hmm. it. Well, here I, if I'm curious and I, I know the story and I know what's underneath, I'm going to approach it more empathetically. Yeah. And I'm going to, for both the individual and the group. So that's the, that's the advantage of a trauma informed group. Mm. We bear in trauma theory, we bear witness to each other's story without having yeah. someone bear witness. It's hard to recover. It is. Yeah. And most of us just want to fix things, especially if people are in pain, but to be present is incredibly powerful and it yeah. requires a tremendous amount of restraint to not just speak yes. or start, start handing them a tissue, yeah. which we were just discussing, yeah. my facilitators and I just did a, a leadership retreat and I was, we were discussing this whole issue of, of tissues and even touching a person who is in pain and the debate of like, how do you offer comfort without disrupting what they are processing experiencing. and experiencing? Yeah. But to have a bunch of people sitting around you while you're in pain and weeping, just holding space for you and not trying to fix it or not trying to... Um, you know, look at the bright side of this, yeah. those types of diminishing comments is incredibly powerful and requires a really well-run group to be able to do that. And, and yes, and to taking that time to explain, um, I, I, my heart is not to tell facilitators how to run their groups but to equip them so that they know why they're running their groups the way they are. Mm -hmm. And so when you, t what you're talking about is that group culture. Well, that's what you're describing. What is our yeah. group culture and, and helping the whole group understand, because there's times you have to, why right. we don't do it that way, because we may be used to it, particularly in the church culture. We are so used to trying to fix. Holding space is one of the gifts of this journey for me is that I can be comfortable holding space for another. No judgment. Yeah. Just being with. And that allows me to know what to ask for when I need that from someone. Yes. That's can beautiful. Can you just hold space with me? 
Mm. Can you just be with? And yeah. learning how um, I was empowered to do that by groups, empowered mm-hmm. to learn that language and, and how to do that was within other within groups. I learn every session. Every time I do a training session, I learn from the from the I I am much more um, strengthened in what I'm doing because of doing this together, life together yeah. with people like you and the women you send my way and others send my way. Uh, they teach me every time. I love it. So Donna, one of the things I really appreciate about your training is that your very first module is revolving around the issue of the crisis of faith that so many partners experience when they experience sexual betrayal. And I know in my own personal story, um, I experienced a tremendous crisis of faith when my world erupted because of sexual addiction in my marriage and the betrayal trauma. Um, I was in full-time ministry. And so as a quote, professional Christian, I was in, in a more public situation with my betrayal and it complicated things tremendously. It also complicated my view of God. I think I had an assumption that because I was serving God full time, that he would preserve and protect me in uh, ways that I thought I had read in scripture, but really I was just putting my own interpretation on it. Um, I really believed that this kind of thing could never happen to me. And when it did, I, my faith was crushed and God basically had to rebuild my faith from the ground up. So I would love to hear more about why you start, why do you start your training with the whole crisis of faith idea? And why is that such a passion of yours to teach? I started because a a partner, something a partner said in a training, uh, not in a training. I was um, shadowing Marsha Means in one of her uh, telephone groups. And one of the partners who is, uh, her background is a nurse and uh, she's had spiritual direction training, just really passionate, brilliant woman, but had a terrible partner story. When we got to the section on trauma, she said something like this. And she said that, I get it. I can understand as a nurse, I can understand the, the more clinical side of this and why trauma happens. But what it what it feels like inside is that it's excusing my behaviors, uh, you know, the kind of trauma responses. And she said, what we need, what I need is a theology of trauma. Well, that sent me on a search because it, it rang a bell. It, it, it just like, yes, yes, I get that. I, I understand that makes sense. And that was in the earliest days of me framing A Door of Hope. And I began searching and I found an article by a man who's been working. He's a clinician, a Christian, uh, and his name is Phil Monroe. And he wrote the first article I found. And he wrote five reasons we need a theology of trauma. Mm. From him, uh, his co-worker, uh, colleague, uh, her name is Diane Langberg, and she has written, and she's written books, she's a yeah. speaker, she's been in this for years. Suffering in the Heart of God, I read Suffering, that. Oh, yes. it's so good. Excellent, excellent. So they began to shape my understanding of uh, what, how trauma impacts us spiritually, uh, emotionally and spiritually. 
And so as I began developing research, then I looked for, uh, I wanted to bring my, my, what I, my intention in creating a, a Door of Hope curriculum and thus training was that it would integrate uh, the, the clinical understanding of sex addiction and betrayal trauma, a, the multidimensional impact of both, uh, biblically accurate, you know, from mm-hmm. a, a biblical worldview. So integrating that. So I wanted to have a clinical perspective too. And Judith Herman is known uh, worldwide as the queen of uh, particularly complex trauma recovery. And she had a quote that uh, started me uh, deciding how to f- do framework around that. And I'm going to read that in a minute. But then what I also want to address is that what I hear out there in general, it just out there in the, the big, broad, diverse, sometimes irritating Christian community because we trying to connect with each other is not working well. Uh, but what I hear out there is a lot of what you're describing uh, that whether someone is a partner or not, or an addict or not, where their faith isn't working for them. And you're hearing terms like uh, deconstruction and reconstruction of our faith. And I was listening and watching what's happening within the body of Christ. Why is this happening? So when I was forming this, what I wanted to do was look at what does this happen related to trauma? But also you touched on something important, that what you thought you believed has evolved into and moved and shifted like it will over a lifetime. There's this, uh, our colleague, Catherine Etherington, talks about a spectrum of uh, of the faith journey. And I love that, that, you know, that we can go up and down that. But Judith Herman said something that was foundational. And she said that trauma shatters the sense of connection between the individual and community, creating a crisis of faith, especially Mm -hmm. when the traumatic events themselves involve the betrayal of important relationships. Traumatized people lose their trust in themselves and in other people and in God. So at the very core, even on a clinical which we sometimes in the Christian community don't trust, but in the in the clinical world there is that recognition, and often in that world it's called called um, spiritual distress. There's actually tools that uh, chaplains and others working in the medical mental health field they'll do assessments on people to see where are you in your spiritual distress. One of the mm. things they're going to assess is what is your felt sense of comfort and safety with God. Ooh, I love that. Your felt sense of comfort and safety, safety with God. God. So when I'm all by myself, when I wake up at night, what comfort and felt sense of safety do I have? Mm. Trauma demolishes that. Yes, it does. We no longer feel safe in our homes, in our uh, in multiple places, we've lost that felt mm-hmm. sense of safety. Another uh, author, she's a nurse, she wrote this, and I love her approach too. She said, uh, spiritual trauma is the effect of trauma upon a person's sense of meaning, her concept or his concept of self, their view of God, 
an understanding of the nature of evil and suffering. Like any aspect of trauma, the extent of spiritual trauma depends on how the traumatic event is viewed by the victim. When you look at your story, and as you know, I share, you let me share your story mm -hmm. and Adore of Hope because it's so captured the heart of what I hoped we would come away from that module with. What is spiritually damaging to one victim may not be damaging to another victim who has gone through the same type of traumatic experience. The more threatening and damaging the effects of the event on an individual's core spiritual values, the greater the trauma, spiritual mm -hmm. trauma. So mm -hmm. when we look at some of that helps shape what did I think we need to cover in this? And I, if you want me to go through some of what I cover, I'd be happy to, because I am passionate about helping um, as an older woman in the big, broad church community. Um, there are some things that are my responsibility in the body of Christ. And one of those is sharing, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. It's been messy. Yeah. I'd love for you to bullet point it. We have a few I minutes. Would. Yep. Would Normalize, normalizing a crisis of faith experience. Mm -hmm. yes. That it's normal. It is not, yeah. It's not because someone isn't spiritually mature. It happens yes. to the mature as well as in different ways. Mm -hmm. And the precipitating behaviors that can, um, that happen, that can be a, also a part of it, not just the, the trauma. Do I have, have I experienced uh, previously as a child or a young adult or in my marriage from my partner or my faith community now, spiritual abuse? Yes. In, in a sense, what you described before, the fix-it mentality, that's a, a, a type of spiritual abuse. If I come alongside someone and will not hold space, will not just sit, have to fix, um, there's the distorted images of God. What do I, how do I see God? Like you said, I, I, I have a perception of who God is without really knowing his character. I think he fixes or his purpose, the kingdom, uh, that the kingdom of God is always redemptively moving forward. So if I don't have that perception of God, that he is good at heart, that his primary feature is love, that God is love he doesn't just love that's who he is so what's my perception and then what i think the big one is is our theological perspective and teaching about suffering we don't mm -hmm. do that and um we mm -hmm. don't you very we very seldom have a teaching series on, on suffering yeah and what it's like that that is the normal human experience mm -hmm. um, some authors talk about suffering is the norm Seasons where we're not, or someone close to us isn't, isn't the norm in this er, er, on this earth. Uh, yeah. Henry Cloud in Changes That Heal introduced me to one little phrase that helped settle that for me. And he said, this, uh, the fall ruined everything. Mm -hmm. We cannot go back to the Eden. We keep trying to get back there. We can only go forward until the kingdom come. And then another tool that helped me a lot, and I introduced into the second edition, was the stages of faith, the critical journey, the stages mm -hmm. of faith. And in it, they describe, uh, the authors describe 
um, six stages. And the first three are what we predominantly spend our time on in, 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 in our discipleship world, in our Christian communities. And that is coming to know God and then learning and discipling about God and then serving God. Well, they introduced the fourth stages. And that's when we hit a crisis and we hit mm. what they call the wall. That's where the, 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 the title for that module, the way out is through. We have to go through that wall. And yes. when we go through that wall, I am a, because of a, a wide range of major crises in my life that undid me at times, I'm a kinder person. Mm-hmm. I am, I have more empathy. Um, I'm able strips to. strips us of judgment, sit. doesn't it? It strips me. It, I, I just can't judge. I, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there, there's no space in me. So without those things, without walking through those things, I, I we go very slowly uh, through that module. Uh, I use lots of videos. I introduce them to videos. I think it's important if to start everything with understanding that people in our groups may not even be aware they, they're in a spiritual crisis of faith and right. may not have ever felt safe saying that. Mm-hmm. We don't leave space. We have to leave space in our communities for saying, I'm angry at God. That's called lamenting. Yeah, It's biblical. It is. You, it's in the Psalms and Lamentations. Totally. Totally. And Paul talked about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Jesus yeah. warned us of it, but somehow mm-hmm. that's, we have, to, so to me, the culture of my yes. group, that it's safe for that makes yes. it a place where I can heal. Mm-hmm. That is so awesome. I love all these concepts that you share in your training, Donna, and they have informed and shaped the way that we run our women in the battle groups. And I can't thank you enough for all your work, your research, your heart and soul that you put into building women up as peer facilitators. It has impacted my life personally. It's impacted the way that I lead my groups and it's impacted the way that my facilitators are trained because I send all of my facilitators to your training. So I can't thank you enough. And this has been so... Oh, yeah. I can't thank you enough for all your work, too. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So I am so grateful. And would you tell our listening audience how they can learn more about your Door of Hope peer facilitator training? Give them your website. I'll be happy to. It's Life is Ahead. So just heading there, Googling that, uh, Life is Ahead. Awesome. Thank you so much, Donna. This has been great. Appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me.